Hi everybody, thank you for tuning in to yet another episode of Getting to the Root of It with Venus Roots, aka me, your host. Before we get started with today's episode, I want to ask y'all to become Patreon subscribers and support the podcast actively. I'm so grateful for y'all's contributions, for y'all's generosity and y'all's support. I don't take it for granted. You can become a Patreon for as low as $3 a month at patreon.com slash venusroots. everybody you are tuned in for another episode of getting to the root of it with venus roots i am your host i hope folks are tuning into pisces season not too overwhelmed in the waters but today's conversation will be grounding and helpful and instructive to sort of have an assessment and an idea of what's going on in the workforce what are the things that we should be considering as workers and also thinking of examples of ongoing resistance from everyday people. I'm very excited to be joined today by Sarah Jaffe. Hi. Hello. Thanks for having me. Of course. Sarah also just wrote a book called Work Won't Love You Back, How Devotion to Our Jobs Keeps Us Exploited, Exhausted, and Alone. So we got lots to get into. (laughs) Sarah, you know, I've I've started reading the book and it's funny because I've I've been following your work for some time now but during the break during the winter break I was like I need a social media break and I realized like that's really where I keep up with what you're up to and in that I missed the the book drop and it was actually a friend of mine who was not familiar with your work but is in a very corporate situation mm-hmm. who got her hands on it and she posted I was like wait what um And I think it's so fascinating that in a moment where the narrative we are getting constantly is either you're a hero and you're a worker and we did cute campaigns for you for a few weeks in the beginning of quarantine, (laughs) or you're a lazy person who's not taking advantage of this time to get your hustle up. Mm -hmm. So you offering all this context and this framework around what what is actually the condition of workers across the country right now? What are we up against and what are some sort of strategies and lessons that we can draw from folks unionizing, folks demanding and folks resisting? Because we know that that's always happening. So first of all, I want to ask, you know, you could have written this book any at any moment, right? Like conditions for workers have (laughs) been getting worse and worse for the past 60 something years. And I'm curious, what were the sort of noticings that, you know, propelled you to say now's the time, now's this offering for this book? Yeah, like you said, I've been sort of gathering string for this book for a really long time. And so much of it is based in just the reporting that I've been doing for like the past 10 years. And I wanted to actually sort of turn right around after I wrote the first book, which came out in 2016, and work on this one. And then Trump got elected. And it was a little bit like all hands on deck moment, you know. And so I was going into... um, kind of what Jane McAlevey called like soldier mode, you know, you're just like, okay, I got to do the thing and do all of the thing and report on all the things that are happening. Um, And after a little while, I was like, okay, okay, I need to think my way back into this book in the Trump moment. um, Because it's, 
a little different, right? Because like everything is still on fire. And like the same histories of racism and sexism that shape the workforce anyway are, you know, Trump wasn't new on that front, certainly. But like the way he had run on these promises to sort of bring back the old jobs, the sort of, you know, manly man jobs for white men, um, the factory jobs, right? Even though when you actually look at who does the jobs in those factories, if you look at the pictures even of Trump when he went to the carrier plant in Indiana after like, keeping it open, you know, he's taking selfies with young black women because that's actually mm-hmm. who works in that plant. You know, it's not just manly man jobs for white men. They're perceived mm-hmm. that way, mm-hmm. but the story is much different. And so, you know, I had to think about like, okay, what is the story that what's compelling about that narrative of those jobs coming back. And I still think a lot of what's compelling about it is you don't have to pretend to like those jobs. <laughs> um, you just, you know, you, you don't have to smile at the machine on the factory floor right. when it goes by the same way you have to smile at the purse. I mean, I wonder if actually like having to wear masks working in, in service right now is like making it a little bit easier on people. It's just mm. like, you can't tell if you're smiling cause you're behind a mask. Uh, but, yeah, so I was working on this book. I actually turned it in at February 28th of 2020, turned in the manuscript. And I was in the UK and I came home straight into lockdown. And so by the time I got the edits back from my editor, it was like, and now you have to re-interview all of these people and talk about <laughs> how their lives have been affected by COVID. Um, and sort of enter all of that into the story. And I actually, I'm going to like pause for a second because I just found out this week that one of the people who's profiled in the book actually died of COVID this week. Um, so Anne-Marie Reinhardt, who was um, profiled in my retail work chapter, she had worked at Toys R Us for like 30 years and had been involved in organizing when the company went bankrupt to get decent, you know, severance benefits for workers. Um, yeah, we lost Anne-Marie this week and it, is um, really sad because she was a lovely, wonderful, warm, generous woman. And also just a reminder of, of who's still facing the brunt of this, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so yeah, trying to think through work in a pandemic has sort of really heightened the stakes on every level. Yeah, absolutely. Some Something I really appreciate about your work and folks who highlight sort of labor organizing and, and the efforts of workers on a day-to-day is that, first off, there's not there's not too much romance in identifying as a worker right now, right? We actually, you know, what we're told is we, we want to be the bosses, we want to be our own bosses or someone <laughs> else's bosses, right? Yep. And then in addition to that, even, even the sort of rhetoric of who's capable of leading, who's capable of demanding, who's capable of doing these quite remarkable acts, that it's somehow, you know, that there's a very narrow idea of who's able to do this. But what workers teach us time and time again, it's that no, right? Like it is, it is the black young mother. It is the non-binary folks. It is folks who have so much to lose, but even more to gain, you know? And that's why I get so frustrated when you see online, like, oh, striking is a privilege, right? And we know that historically, it couldn't be further away from the truth. Yeah. (laughs) So I want to hear a little bit from you because, you know, you have 
you know, you're able to actually build with a lot of these folks, actually get to know their stories and actually uplift them. So, so we can sort of really understand and learn from that. You know, last week you wrote a piece um, on the nation around nurses mm-hmm. and healthcare workers. And nurses have been up to some remarkable organizing work for a while now. You know, for folks who are like, I don't know what strikes y'all talking about. I don't know what organizing y'all talking about. Like, can you can you sort of invite us and, and bring us up to speed? Yeah. Like, what are folks up to on the ground? Yeah, it was interesting because I was just looking at a report on strike data from 2020. And this is sort of official government statistics. And by that metric, like strike numbers are way down in 2020. But as as the economist who was writing about this, Heidi Sheerholz from the Economic Policy Institute noted, the government actually only tracks strikes of over a thousand workers. Yeah. Whereas some friends of mine at, at Strike Wave, another labor publication, had just you know broken down most union elections, say in the last several years, have been for bargaining units of like 15, 20 people. Wow. So like there are just so many, so far fewer workplaces that have a thousand people in them um, to even have that kind of a strike. So we those numbers aren't capturing things like the two women that I talked to that walked out of a Bojangles in North Carolina because they found out that one of their coworkers had COVID from like a sort of hidden notice on the bulletin board in the back. Like their managers didn't say like, hey, we had COVID in the workplace. We're gonna, you know, they didn't do anything. There was just kind of a little notice. And and this one woman saw it and was like, oh no, 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 no. And she, you know, she told her coworker that they both walked out, went on strike, called the local news. They had not been previously organizing. You know, um, the North Carolina fight for 15 folks actually found them by seeing it on the local news and said, oh, my God, we've got to, you know, we've got to get in touch with these folks and help them out. Um, but, you know, like things like that, right, that that, that statistic isn't going to capture mm-hmm. what these women did. Um but they were, you know, again, like nobody helped them do this. Nobody sort of coached them through this. They were like, well, I'm not gonna. And they, it was really funny because like Bojangles apparently has like a slogan about like risk it for the biscuit, which mm-hmm. like I'm old and not cool. So I don't understand what's like that's trying to reference. But like they were like, you know, telling us to risk it for the biscuit is a little bit much when like you're literally asking us to risk getting COVID. Mm-hmm. You know, they're like, it's not cute. Mm-mm. It's not Logan anymore. You know, he's not a cute t-shirt that we want to wear to work anymore. Um, we're not actually going to risk that. Or like a Sephora worker that I spoke to um, last spring who was like, I don't want to die for lipstick. Mm-mm. You know, that like before the pandemic, working at Sephora could be kind of fun. You're putting makeup on people, you know, they don't pay you great, but it wasn't bad. You know, they said to me like, this is a pretty good job. But now they want us to come back in and don't want to die for lipstick. Just, just don't want to do it. Not worth it. So there are all these stories that sort of get missed in the big top line narrative about what a strike is, because it's, you know, it's it's sometimes a calculation that people are making, literally between life and death. You know, whether we're going to walk off the job. And the history of striking. I mean, I'm a giant nerd who isn't at all trained in in history, but I just like end up putting a ton of it into everything I write because like, I think you can't understand these things if you don't understand where they come from. And also like the history reminds us that it can change, that it doesn't need to be the way it is right now, that actually it has been different in the past. 
And so, you know, I include stories of like the sit down strike among the young women who worked at Woolworths in the 1930s. And this is, you know, just shortly after the big sit down strike at the, you know, the GM plant in Flint that, you know, is one of the founding sort of myths of American labor. And these, you know, these women who worked at Woolworths, which is, you know, the Walmart of its time, um, they were like, well, we can do that too. And all right. So they, you know, they sat down in a Woolworths and they occupied the Woolworths for like, I don't remember exactly how many days, but, you know, several. And it spread. Other people, you know, imitated them in other parts of the country. They won most of their demands. And they did it by sort of being really smart about um, mobilizing the expectations that people had for them, right? Because like, you know, the, the men write for the newspaper sort of come in and they're like, oh, look at these cute girls who are like, you know, striking. And so the girls are like, yeah, we are really cute, aren't we? Don't you want to write about us more? Don't you want to talk about our strike all the time? Look at how adorable and charming we are. You know, it was, it was, yeah, they were super smart about how, you know, knowing the way they were going to get treated, that they weren't going to be treated as seriously as the, the men in, you know, in the factory, mm-hmm. but that they could use that to their advantage because like, you know, Woolworths didn't want to be the people who were like dragging, you know, 19 year old women out of a store for sitting down on the job. So, you know, there are just, there are so many wonderful stories about that, that like remind us that like far from striking being a privilege, which is, I, I blame like the sort of resistance Twitter for that one. Like mm-hmm. that, you know, again, back to those sort of early pre-Trump days where like, God, I forget who it was who wrote an article that was just like, we should all go on a general strike against Trump. Everybody who can take a day off work. And it's like, honey, you don't know what a strike is, do you? <laughs> like a strike is the removal of your labor from your boss in order to hurt your boss's profits and get what you want. It's not like a day off mm. because it's fun. You know, strikes are a lot of work, actually. Um, and yeah, but they, I mean, they also can be a lot of fun. Like I, I, you know, had a great time when I was in LA for the teacher strike and, you know, it was like pouring down rain, which like Los Angeles, four days straight of mm-hmm. rain was mm-hmm. timing and everything, right? Um, and there's, you know, the teachers have like dance routines on the picket line in the rain and everybody's like borrowing rain boots from whoever might actually own them because who in Los Angeles owns rain boots? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they're like clearing all the umbrellas out at every store that sells umbrellas. Um, I remember I couldn't find an umbrella. I was like trying to find where you buy an umbrella because in New York, you know, like you, you walk down the street when it's raining and there's like 20 guys with a cart selling you an umbrella as you walk by. Mm-hmm. Um, not in LA, not so much. Yep. yep. But, yeah, I mean, these moments where you sort of see the refusal of what capitalism wants us to be, mm-hmm. uh, they are a lot of fun in that way. But like the idea that it's a privilege is just kind of, it, it's so like historically misinformed. Yeah. You know, I, I appreciate you sort of just sharing some some examples because I know there's just so many so many and and I'm already loving the book so much because you offer all these different little snippets of folks just saying it how it is and one of the heartbreaking and expected moments of this aspect of disaster capitalism is that you know there there's a lot of myths being created and I want to talk a little bit also about 
this essential worker framework mm-hmm. and also sort of the ways in which, like I said, you know, the the system, the mainstream elite said, okay, it's okay for us to care about these specific workers, maybe for like a week or two, you know, let's make some billboards, let's make some campaigns, like some PR stuff, and then let's go back to business as usual. Mm-hmm. And I think that sort of strategy made it very hard for folks on the outside to understand that, you know, those niceties actually don't mean anything without policy, without Mm -hmm. demands being met, without the conditions of workers actually transforming, right? And and it's not like workers have never been saying anything. It's like they've been (laughs) attempting and then, you know, capital shifts itself to to do the thing that it does. Mm -hmm. But I'm curious, like, you know, here we are essentially almost a, a year into quarantine. What have been some of top of line things that you have been reflecting on in terms of this this framework of who's an essential worker? Why don't we care about workers? I mean, we know why, but kind of <laughs> even, in a, even in a moment of a global pandemic where folks are quite literally risking their lives for us to be able to get groceries for us to be yeah. able to get our medicines for, you know, very basic things. Um, yeah. yeah. What are, what are some top of line things for you? Yeah. The essential worker narrative is so interesting, right? Cause like over and over and over again, people who have been called essential workers have said some variety of, they say I'm essential, but really I feel expendable. Really they mm-hmm. treat us more expendable. I've heard that so many times from so many different workers, right? And it's it's true, right? That like the thing that you're supposed to get instead of decent, safe working conditions, a raise is being told that you're essential. Isn't that great? Mm-hmm. And like, it's really, um, it plays out in so many ways, right? Because like a lot of these same workers who are suddenly essential, um, are the ones who are always talked about as if they don't do anything worth doing, right? Like I remember Anne Marie that I was talking about before that I, you know I met because she worked at Toys R Us was you know she has all of these sort of horrifying stories of just things people would say mm-hmm. when they couldn't get their way in the store, and she worked you know in the customer service desk and things like that, um, and she was a supervisor, and so she sort of was like responsible for this stuff, so she saw a lot of it. And people, this woman once said to her, like in said in to her daughter in front of Anne Marie and another worker that like, oh, well, this is why, this is why you go to school. So you get educated. So you don't end up like them. Hmm. You know, this is like the story of retail work, right? That they're not really, it's not really work. It's not really serious. It's just, you know, if you end up doing retail work, you must be stupid. You must be not educated. You must be whatever. And Amory's like, look, I went to college. Mm. Half of my part-timers are in college right now. This is the job. And like, you know, she even dealt with like her husband saying, this isn't a real job. Maybe you should get a real job. And Mm. she was like, look, my health insurance is is what's paying for us right now. You know, we want to tell me it's not a real job. (laughs) Uh, You know, that she worked her way up from being a a part-time seasonal hire to being in HR at the company. Um, But people are like, oh, it's not a real job. It's not a real job. Like it's, it's so pernicious, right? Because like, then you get the essential worker story and, you know, we go out and we clap for the essential workers and people have signs in their doorways and there's billboards, like you said, saying like, thank you, essential workers. 
But when the essential workers say, okay, can we have a raise now? It's like, but we clapped for you. We mm-hmm. thanked you. How dare you? Like, mm-hmm. you know, um, how dare you expect that you actually get a slice of these mega profits you're producing, right? Like Kroger was one of many grocery store companies that at first gave people some hazard pay, right? They got like, I think $2 extra an hour. Um, I talked to a bunch of Kroger workers early on and then the hazard pay ends, mm-hmm. right? And I actually spoke to a worker who not only had the hazard pay ended, but she actually got a letter saying she had to pay back because she'd been overpaid her hazard pay. Huh. And we broke that story and Kroger back down from that one. But it hasn't returned the hazard pay, even though the hazard is still there. The second wave of this thing hit, you know. And not only that, but now they're saying they're going to lay off workers hmm. um, rather than, than pay them more. And this is, you know, there was an article that I found when I saw the story of them saying that they would let workers go rather than pay them more, that they would close stores rather than pay them more. They described Kroger's profits in the last year as eye-popping, you know, that they were up some massive amount from the year before. I'm terrible with numbers off the top of my head, but like, you know, so the essential worker narrative ends up doing this, this work of sort of being the lip service that we pay so that we don't actually have to pay real wages. Um, You know, and it is, it is however really interesting because like you're in Miami, I'm in New York. We're both in places that are going to be underwater in like 20 years. Mm -hmm. If not Um, sooner. We've got a climate crisis coming. Texas is currently like big swaths of Texas have no power right now. And people Mm -hmm. are, you know, dying of carbon monoxide poisoning from trying to heat themselves up in their cars. Like we are in the middle of a literal, you know, ecological catastrophe basically every day. And so like on that level, like thinking about essential work is actually really important because like we do as a society need to consider like what we need to do and what is the stuff that we are just like producing junk that also produces pollution that also, you know, we have to buy a new iPhone every two years because the things are planned to be obsolete. So you toss them out. Like, we actually really do have to have like a planetary conversation about what is essential and what is not mm-hmm. because like as a society, we need to change some things. And most of us don't actually have the power no matter what anybody tells you about getting, you know, environmentally friendly light bulbs or whatever, like there's only so much you and I can do. Right. But this is, it can potentially be a moment that reminds us that like, we did change how we live really, really quickly. Mm-hmm. And it's possible to change that. And it's possible to do it in a way that that sucks a lot less, frankly, you know? Uh, I mean, first of all, I just really can't wait to the point where I can actually like hang out with my friends again. That will be really nice. Um, I'm lonely. <laughs> but also, you know, like we could work a lot less and that would actually be great for the climate if we like yeah. produce less stuff and worked less and commuted less and all of this stuff. And so we could actually like make a world where we have a lot more free time to actually spend with other people and not, you know, buying stuff and ordering delivery every night because we're so damn tired at the end of the work day that we can't cook. Mm, Uh, You know, like think about the whole economy that's been built on the fact that everybody works too much. Yep. Um, It's bonkers. So like, I do think on that level, like essential work can be a, a part of an important conversation that we do politically need to have, like to remember that like the, the essential work is the work of social reproduction and that work has never actually been properly valued. Yep. But what would it actually look like to value it? 
and to build our world around that rather than around, you know, guys on Wall Street and, and uh, you know, Robin Hood app and GameStop and all that garbage, um, which I find <laughs> hilarious. And anyway. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, there's two two points I want to tease out from what you just yeah. offered. There's there's the gendered labor aspect that has mm-hmm. come to its head during this crisis, right? Like who has had to deal with the childcare, who has had to deal with all forms of like sort of reproductive care, be at their homes, with their families and communities. Um, and then we can even expand it. Like who are the type of people who even have the jobs like home health aides, right? That are exposing mm-hmm. themselves or nurses. Um, so I'm curious to hear a little bit about the sort of gendered history, um, which you talk about in the book, the sort of gendered history of these care, care of this care labor. And, yeah. you know, that's also not considered work or even considered right. labor all at the same time. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Like we um, it's funny now, you know, like Ezra Klein has a piece in The New York Times saying like, oh, maybe maybe child care is work and maybe forcing people into the wage workforce was a bad idea, actually. And maybe we should give people a child care payment. And I would like everybody to collectively write a letter of apology to the women of the welfare rights movement who were absolutely demonized for saying that actually raising their children is plenty of work and the government should in fact support that work because we actually need to perpetuate the species. It's really important to have more people, humans, you know, we like them, they're good. (laughs) We should make more, (laughs) you know, and, and like, I just, yeah, it, it makes me mad because um, the way that we talked about welfare queens, right? And we know mm-hmm. what that was, right? What that was was mm-hmm. black women who dared to not work every second of every day, um, which, hello. Um, there's just, there's so much history on that front that I think um, it gets, you know, it's not that old. I'm, I'm 40 years old. I remember Bill Clinton's welfare reform bill, right? I remember that discourse. Um, I was in high school when that was happening. This is just not that long ago. Like Hillary Clinton was trying to be president not all that long ago. These are still people like Joe Biden was involved in that fight, right? Like, in fact, he should write a a signed (laughs) apology to women of the welfare rights movement if they sign this child tax uh, allowance expansion, which they should, it would be great. Also, I would like you to dedicate it to Johnny Tillman and everybody else. Um, it's it's this history that like women are supposed to stay home in the house and take care of the children, except for some women who aren't really considered women in the same way that like white women, white femininity is this thing that needs to be protected and cared for and sort of doted upon. And that means that, you know, well, the men aren't going to actually do the extra work. So what ends up happening is, is, you know, white women hired women of color to do the work mm-hmm. for them. Um, and yeah, when the welfare story is basically that this is a program that for a long time only white women had access to. And by the time it actually opened up a little bit, thanks to all of this organizing from mostly black women, um, when finally black mothers were getting access to government support, that's when it gets demonized, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Because this this idea of sort of who should work and who shouldn't work and what is work anyway, um, it's just always, always 
raced and gendered. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, women aren't supposed to go into the workplace. And if they go into the workplace, they can only go into these jobs that are basically sort of like what they're doing at home. So they can be teachers, they can be nurses, they can do home care, they can do domestic work, they can do laundry. Um, that's what it ends up. You can go into retail service because you're going to be waiting on female customers who come in to do the shopping. Um, and those jobs, you know, are still predominantly done by women today, right? 75-ish percent of American teachers are women. Um, this whole narrative about, you know, moms are struggling in the pandemic, so therefore we need to reopen the schools, misses that like a whole lot of the teachers that you're trying to push back into the classroom are also moms who are struggling. They are in fact the same people, but it gets broken out in this different way, right? Because like who's you know, whose work is valued, whose work is not valued. Um, And this is all sort of rooted in these old binaries that like Sylvia Federici writes about, right? That like the period of the time of the enclosures, of the witch hunts, of colonialism, right? Of like the, you know, colonizing of the Americas, the beginning of the institution of slavery. All of this is wrapped up in the foundations of modernity. It's not like, this wasn't like the last gasp of, of you know, the, the feudal past. This was actually what created the roots for the capitalism we live under. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, these ideas of race and gender are really created all in the same moment. And that means that like women are supposed to stay home and take care of the children, have the children, take care of the children, um, do the things that aren't really work. Men are now, rather than bee farmers or whatever, um, are going to go into wage labor and they're going to get paid a wage for the day and then go home. Um, we're going to, you know, in mass take ships to Africa and kidnap people and bring them to the Americas where we have wiped out, you know, lots of the people who were already there in order to have, you know, create more profits, grow the cotton that then gets shipped back to England to the Industrial Revolution. It's this is the history of the thing we still live under. And it's absolutely necessary to realize that like, it's all built on all of this labor that wasn't paid. Mm. And so when we look now at the way that different workers are valued in the workplace, so much of that is not about whether that work is valuable at all, whether that work produces value for capital at all. It's rooted in the fact that we don't think that these people matter. We don't think that these people's work is really work, that they are people who are deserving of a wage. So um, yeah, <laughs> that's the root of that. And then we can go in like 20 different directions from that one. <laughs> yep. I, I think, you know, my head is all, all obviously everywhere and back, right? Because there's so much, there's such a dark, twisted and history that unravels when you try to think about labor in this country. Right. And the sort of labor that folks have been forced upon Mm -hmm. um, and the sort of labor that to this day is in many ways, you know, just remnants of this. Right. Like we are still forcing people to take up certain labor. We still have, you know, in the decimation of the, the, the social safety net that we had at some point even more people are expected to take on other labors, right? And for me, it makes me think a lot about, you know, one of the premises of your book, right? That if we are told, if the mainstream culture, the cultural hegemony is telling us and teaching us that we actually should 
love our work. We should be thankful for our work. Um, you know, like the quote we were talking about earlier, like if you love what you do, you won't work a day in your life. You know, it's just a big question mark, like what? <laughs> <laughs> and here we are, we're in the middle of a pandemic, you know, folks really, you know, we're getting so much value um, through our work, right? Like whatever our occupation, what company we work for and all these things. But in so time and time again, what we're being told is to love what we do, love mm -hmm. our work and be grateful for it and sort of be submissive in, in, in the mm -hmm. hardships that that work might bring. Tell me a little bit about how, how you were thinking around this like love ethic for work um bullshit and and kind of like the, <laughs> the things that you tease out in the book yeah like it's so much right that like somehow this thing that like came about because basically like you know a bunch of rich people sort of closed off all the common land and forced people to then have to be able to work for them for a living um now we've got that it you know however many hundred years later we've got this idea that like oh no we work because we need meaning that's actually why we get up in the morning and go to a job. It's not mm. because we would starve if we didn't, right? It's not because like, I don't actually have a choice because I don't have, you know, I'm not a Kardashian. I don't have an inheritance waiting for me. Like I am not rich, so therefore I have to work. And, you know, it, it's this like, oh, but what, what would we do if we didn't work? I don't know, man, probably lots of things. I, I know what I would be up to. I'm like, I could tell y'all. But like, right. So, it, but it, it's, it's not just like, you know, yeah. Okay. It makes perfect sense that when we have to do something for a large part of our waking hours, um, we want to do something that is less miserable. We want to mm -hmm. do something we might even enjoy. That makes tons of sense. The problem with that is that like, then again, like we were talking about the lip service, the essential worker, the idea that you enjoy it is the substitute for anything else you might get out of it, right? So it's a substitute for security. It's a substitute for stability. It's a substitute for health insurance, a decent wage, right? If you are working, it's been really interesting over the last few years, there's been a lot of um, union drives at some of these really prestigious sort of New York publications, right? So like the New Yorker magazine has been in a fight, the staff have been in a fight, the union to get decent, conditions, get a contract um, for the union to raise their base wage. And like, this is the, like the prestige publication in the US, right? It is, it's the sort of thing that, you know, dominates the whatever. Um, to get in the door there, you probably have to have not only gone to college, but gone to a fancy college. Hmm and done all sorts of other work to you know sort of scrape your way up to this thing which is the epitome of prestige have student debt and they're they're saying that you know $45,000 a year is is a lot of money and you have to live in New York because the New Yorker um and so you watch this sort of narrative get weaponized right well well it's the New Yorker so if you don't like it I'm sure there are lots of other people who would love to have your job Mm -hmm. So therefore, how dare you ask for a raise? How dare you say that you should be able to pay your rent and your student loan bill? <gasps> you're supposed to be grateful because you you're get not going to do that on 45,000. On this city. Um, yeah, it, it's just 
right? Like this is, this is supposed to be the peak of the profession and they want to pay you below the American median wage. Mm -hmm. That's, that's what they got for you in the most expensive city, not only in the country, but one of the most expensive cities in the world. That's, that's what you got. Um, but you, you should love it and be grateful and be happy that you work there. Um, and you know, just drive for Uber on the side. Yep. In New York. Anyway, um, you know, this, so this story that I was hearing over and over again from all of these different kinds of workers, right. Um, is everywhere now. It's so much that people like are kind of stunned when they, they talk to me about this book. They're like, but, but what do you mean? Like what, what, what would people do if they didn't work? What would we do if we didn't? And it's just like, again, like, I don't know, for a lot of human history, in fact, we didn't, or we worked a lot less. Um, this, you know, so this narrative, I, I find it, again, I find it everywhere, but I find it sort of endlessly fascinating, the different ways that it's been adapted in different industries, which is why I sort of broke the book down into, you know, chapter by chapter, industry by industry, um, to get at the different ways that it's weaponized for different people. Um, in different places, you know, but also like, it was so striking to me how many times I heard the same exact story. Like whether you work at Walmart or a video game company, like as a video game programmer, the boss has almost certainly told you that you're like a family. It's like a family working here. We're part of the family. Isn't that great? Well, you know what you don't expect from your family? Wages. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you, know? Um, you know what you don't do with your family quit uh, you know what also you don't do with the family is get fired most of the time but that never seems to be part of the, the thing when the boss says you're in a family basically when your boss says that you're in a family run it's not gonna end anywhere good for you <laughs> oh you know and part of it too the the love ethic also trend is transcending beyond um typical corporate structures right mm -hmm. like this is also kind of transcending to like the freelance gig economy of course for artists who are have always been historically in an incredibly precarious situation like all of that is like bleeding through to people who in some way you know in the traditional form might not actually have like one direct boss right yeah i'm curious like you know, what What goodies come out of folks that are in, in this in between? Gig economy, artists, freelance. My life, uh, I'm freelance, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's super real. Like I was thinking about this um, this week because like, you know, when you're trying to pitch people things and like I've got a book out, so I'm supposed to be pitching everywhere, right? Because I'm supposed mm -hmm. to be promoting the book. I am promoting the book. But like... <laughs> You know, you, so you send pitches to places that you've written for before, and then suddenly you get crickets back and you're like, what did I do? Was it something I said? Did I say something on Twitter? Did I write something somewhere else? Was I like, you sort of have this constant thing going in your head. It's, it's, it's the panopticon, right? The whole point of uh, Jeremy Bentham's brilliant innovation <clears throat> was that you will surveil yourself. You will feel like somebody is always watching you, always has an eye on you. And so you will keep that eye on yourself. You will make sure that you don't say things that might offend, that you are not controversial. It's really hard to have a book out where I basically say that we should dismantle the capitalist mode of production and not be controversial. It's kind of tough. But, you know, 
I mean, <laughs> you know, it's, it's like, yeah. So it's this constant thing that's humming in the back of your head, right? That like, you know, when you worked at the Ford factory and you might work at the Ford factory for 40 years. Now, if you work at the same place for more than like two years in a row, it's a big deal. Yep. I can't imagine like getting a job that lasts five years, you know? Um, I just, I, I haven't had one in my life ever, you know? Um, and yeah, what does that do to us? It makes us always, always on because we're always looking for the next opportunity. Mm-hmm. And then social media just makes it all worse. And social media makes it all worse. That is the part. You know, it's funny because this, in, in a lot of ways, the sort of the thesis of what you're proposing, right? Like the questioning, yes, of the capitalist mode of production, like the the knowing and the reckoning that actually most of us are workers, which yeah. mean has a lot of implications. Yeah. Um, it's something that I don't think is, is as discussed, you know, it's not as popular in typical discussion, right? Mm-hmm. You know, in, in that framework. But I think something that's funny is I, I remember seeing maybe two years ago or last year this meme going around that was so popular. And essentially the meme was something around like, you know, when people ask me what what my dream job is, mm-hmm. you know, I and I just respond, I don't dream about work. Yeah. Every all types of people, you know, <laughs> even folks with like kind of better jobs and higher mm-hmm. wages and more oh, yeah. education. And then my, fo- you know, my friends and like service industry and then all in between the ones in the nonprofit, like, you know, yeah. gig workers, like everyone was reposting that shit. And it spoke so much to what you're trying to offer, yeah. you know, like actually <laughs> the idea that we should be wanting to spend all of our waking hours working in exchange yeah. of wages is yeah. you know it's it's depressing at best <laughs> and and it's also really it's just troubling right like it's it's actually mm-hmm. troubling and i and i debate my dad about this all the time he's a maintenance worker and has been mm-hmm. for a long time you know and now he's old you know he's or older he's 65 so his knees are all messed up and yeah. he took like a, a week off work right like during the pandemic and you know, I'm like, how are you? You know, how are you enjoying this time? And he's like, well, I'm bored because, you know, like, you know me, I, I, you know, us older folks, like we just like work, you know, we, you know, I, I've, I feel like I'm, you know, I, I have nothing to do. And a part, you know, there's so much to unpack there. Right. And, and I've even seen that sort of bleeding over with friends of mine, right. And, and comrades of mine that are, you know, not 65 years old, but mm-hmm. still thinking like, even if I'm not on the clock, like how can I capitalize or monetize whatever, even hobbies, or how can I monetize anything, mm-hmm. right? Or how can I, you know, what Jenny O'Dell says in her book, the how how to do nothing. Like, okay, how this is my opportunity to build my personal brand, right? Now that I'm off the clock, right. now I'm on the other clock. Yeah. And you know, I'm just curious, like, you know, with all of your reporting and all the folks that you have met, like you know, what, what is that doing to us? Right. Like, and also our ability to organize and actually contend, you know, cause it's not just what it's doing psychologically. It's like, it, it's making us not have solidarity. It, yeah, exactly. What does it do to our movements when we're all trying to build our movement brand and when we're fighting over like who said the thing first, you know, mm. um, 
and who who came up with the idea first and and all of that like it's it's really hard because you know that is how we get anywhere is we get rewarded and this is like the non-profit i have a whole chapter on the nonprofit industrial complex and all of its problems and one of the problems with it is that like the funders are big capital and so they expect to run the nonprofit the same way that they run the bank or the you know tech company right whether it's bill gates or or you know whatever um so that it's all about deliverables right so if you're trying to have a little organization in your community where you're trying to organize in your community for i don't know to keep people from being deported to you know make sure that everybody has access to food to get the lights back on in texas right like whatever it is that you were doing that is like necessary for your community, you know, you're going to have to write a grant proposal for it. That's going to have deliverables. And if you have not met your deliverables at the end of the whatever, like you're not going to get the grant next time. And then you're going to have to lay off the people who, you know, you may have hired a whole bunch of people from the community that don't have a bunch of other great job options waiting for them. Right. You know, I think a lot about this, about like Ferguson, right. It was like after the protests in Ferguson in 2014, you know, the, the foundation sort of roll in with the money and they start tossing the money at the local organizations, you know, groups who would like, you know, had not ever had this kind of money, had not had paid staff ever you know so they hire young people from the movement that's great for about a year until the foundations all you know have the attention span of you know a ferret on speed and they go somewhere else and the money is gone now because ferguson is no longer interesting until you know they came back around in 2019 2020 2020 there's a whole bunch more protests and people are like oh crap we forgot black people mattered here we go again with the same cycle that's probably going to, you know, go a different way in another year. And it, it's just, it's infuriating because like, how do you actually build sustainable movements in order to actually win some shit when the funding just sort of is dependent on like what Mark Zuckerberg feels like doing this month, what the Ford foundation thinks they're into this month, um, you know, and like, it's just, impossible right it's 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 so difficult and yet like you know the right has all of these resources because they are literally fighting to keep those resources in the same five white guys hands they've always been in so it's you know it's much easier to get money when what you're doing is protecting the, the structures of capital right um and the rest of us you know, we were going, ah. so, you know, if you can build your personal brand and, and get that money, you, you might be doing something really important with that money, but it's also like, and then you have to be pitted against the other five organizations that are competing for that money. Like how often have we gotten an email in the inbox? It's like, you know, vote for us in this thing to get this funding. And it's like five great organizations that are all being pitted against each other. We have to vote for them in order to win. And it's just like, shit. Mm. what is that yeah. right what is that why do i have to like choose my favorite worker center out of like the 10 that are on this thing to see which one gets the grant why are we competing to get mm. the money you know um it's just so neoliberal um, <laughs> i know saying that is so cliche but it's true it's just like this whole thing has made us think that everything has a price tag and everything has to be the result of competition and it just doesn't it just doesn't mm. Yep. I need that one to sink in. I'm like, yep, 
you know, not even to get into the details of, you know, what happens when, yeah, you see organizations sort of finessing and talking about yeah. their campaigns very differently and grant reports and yeah. you know, trying to snatch the spot rather than us actually deepening our ecosystem and solidarity with each other. Um, yeah, yeah, it's it's. it's yep it's yeah and at the end of the day like you said it's just making us less capable of winning which is the shit that we actually need because we're just running out of time you know these are existential moments and yeah we we actually just need to start winning we need to start building um you know i to sort of close off i always like asking folks because you know the topics that come through here are always it's always existential shit you know we're like (laughs) (laughs) we're like you know just another day resisting like neoliberal (laughs) fascism and here we go great (laughs) but you know what are what are some of the moments what are some of the anecdotes or what are some of the hopes that are just keeping you afloat that are keeping you in the fight you know a lot of us could just choose to say you know i'm gonna just start grifting fucking movement (laughs) and just i'm gonna get my check and the pushing yeah we're trying not you know it's really i've been thinking about this a lot because i've been thinking about Anne marie and i've been thinking about karen lewis the former president of the chicago Mm. teacher who we also lost very recently and i'm like you know these these are people that i know because i wrote about their stories but they're also people that i know because like i spent time with them and i care about the struggles they were in and that means i care about them and i i'm you know just thinking about like what it means to actually be a journalist and be be a freelancer in this terrible stupid hustle cycle but also to actually like care about being accountable to the people that I write about um, because they're so great. I, you know, I'm thinking about Karen and we, we, Karen was the very first guest on the podcast that I've been doing since 2013 um, or 2014, 2013. I don't know. A long time. She was our very first guest. And we, you know, we were like, we can't launch a podcast about labor with anybody other than Karen Lewis. So she was in New York for a thing. So uh, my, my then co-host Josh and I sit down with Karen and it was just like, oh my God, she's just this, you know, well of brilliance, but she was also not alone, right? She was also part of an organization. She was also part of a group within that organization that had, you know, organized to change it, to take power within it. Um, She was the face of it. And she, you know, because I mean, A, because she was hilarious. Um, She was just so funny, right? She was so good at, at just, you know, anything they threw at her, she could just throw back. But also like, because everybody trusted her because she had been a teacher in that system for so long and she had built up all of this trust with people who knew that like, if Karen was in it, then like it was for real. And yeah, so I'm just sort of, you know, thinking constantly about like, the thing that allowed these people to be able to win was this kind of deep trust that they built and this deep care that they built mm-hmm. into these structures and into the movement. And so, you know, we we are all just like, oh my God, we lost Karen. Oh my God, we lost Anne Marie, you know, that that like I get a call from from people who had worked with her, multiple people who had worked with her were like, did you hear? I just we wanted to make sure you knew. Um, because like, these are, these are women, it's just not shocking me. These are women that held this whole movement together with their care. 
And, you know, it's, it's still, as, as we've returned to over and over in this show, like the least valued thing in the world. And like, because neoliberal capitalism still has a hard time putting a price tag on it, although it keeps trying, um, you know, we have to sort of be able to pull that back from them and, and own that as, as sort of the bedrock of the work we're doing and not in these sort of creepy, you know, what about the children kind of ways that like, you know, end up in QAnon territory, but like real actual care and solidarity. And despite sort of everything being horrifying, like I keep reading stories of mutual aid groups in Texas right now, you know, going door to door and making sure that people have clean water. Um, Like, I think about like from the beginning of the pandemic when people were forming mutual aid groups in their neighborhoods and putting community fridges in their neighborhood, you know, like all of the little ways that we, despite everything, are showing care for each other. Um, the people who during the protests last spring and summer that, that you know, after George Floyd and, and Breonna Taylor were killed, the people who would show up with like a little red wagon full of little baggies with a mask and hand sanitizer and a granola bar and a bottle of water in it and make sure that everybody had what they needed to be safe as they could at the protest. Um, and like there was a banner that was just like care, not cops. And I was like tattoo it on my chest. Yes. This is my politics. That's it. That's, that's it. it. <laughs> no. And I think we've just, we've had a year of reminding us that that has to be the core of everything. And it does, it does break the police. It does break the workplace. It breaks everything if we actually care about each other. Yes. Thank you so much, Sarah. That just got me in my feels. Yeah, I really have a lot Uh, of them. (laughs) I guess, you know, there's so many, so many tactics that want us to hate each other, to distrust each other. And despite it all, like, we still continue to show up. And it's just like that adaptability of humans that I just like, we, despite all the bullshit, like we could be remarkable. Yeah. Like, wow. Yeah. Yeah. No, thank you so much. Thank you for being on the show. Very excited to finish the book. Um, Cannot recommend it enough already. Again, work won't love you back. So stop loving it. <laughs> in short, <laughs> I'm like, in short, as per Sarah, work sucks. And that's just the truth we need to be operating from. Yeah. Thank you so much. <laughs>